Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen. It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis, and this is episode number 207. And our movie this week is 2001's Mulholland Drive, written and directed by David Lynch. And joining me to talk about it, from Gleaming the Tube and a maker of documentary films, it's Kevin. Kevin, how you doing? Hey there, Travis. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to dig into this classic of American cinema. Absolutely. So, all right. So you brought this movie to my attention. I had not seen Mulholland Drive before, but I want to know your history with it. So when did you first see it and sort of what, what, what's your you know background with this movie? Uh, the first time I saw this movie was in the theater during its original theatrical run. I was in the very early days of dating uh, the person who's now my wife and this was one of our early dates we went to the we went to the art house cinema to see this we felt very sophisticated and uh we both were really like kind of deeply affected by it i I would say like on the first viewing i didn't feel like it made a lot of linear sense to me it was like after thinking about it that i was sort of like oh okay that that's kind of what's going on there um I was, you know, I was a fan of David Lynch's other stuff. I liked Twin Peaks. I really liked Blue Velvet. Uh, I thought Wild at Heart was fun. So going into this, I kind of, you know, it wasn't like a shock to the system of like, uh, oh, there's going to be crazy stuff happening and right allusions to 1950s pop culture. Um, I didn't watch it again until around uh, 2013. I saw a theatrical production in London called drowned man a hollywood fable and i felt like it had a lot of mulholland drive energy so i revisited it then to kind of see some of the parallels and it was definitely like a heavy a heavy influence on that show it's one of those like immersive theater like you wander around the set and interact with characters things Uh um and then uh in 2000 during the height of everything being locked down i was you know i was looking for stuff to do and i was sick of just pointing my remote at the TV and being like, I don't know what to watch. So I, I embarked on a quest to to watch like a movie from every year since 1920 uh, in order to sort of like try and see how cinema evolved. And uh, this was this and In the Mood for Love were kind of my 2001 picks. And so this like for this episode uh, taping, this was my fourth time viewing the movie. I watched it this week on the gorgeous 4k new ultra high def criterion blu-ray so that is uh that is my history with this film i, I kind of counted among one of my favorite movies ever i think when we were talking about doing the episode I, I was like well these are some of my favorite movies if you want to discuss some of these and uh this was the one you kind of sparked to and i am curious uh did you like this movie so i did i will say that uh just like you when i when it finished I was like, the hell did I just watch? But I had the same reaction when I finished Blue Velvet for the first time about a year ago or so, maybe a little less than that, where I got done with the movie and I was just like, I was scratching my head because I have to sort of, there's like a buffer of processing time when I get done watching something from from somebody like a David Lynch, where I just need to process that. And then it's like the further I get away from that first viewing of it, the better the movie is to me and the more I get out of it and it makes what it made me want to do was give it a week or two to breathe and then watch this again 
and sort of, and I've, I've used this analogy a few times and I love this analogy for a movie like this, which is, um, and mentioning that the, that kind of immersive theater experience works for this too. It's like going and seeing a play and then going back and seeing it a week or two later, but sitting in a different part of the theater. And it's a, you're seeing the exact same thing, but now you've got both the experience of having seen it once before and you're looking at it from a different angle now. And so you see different things and you experience it in a different way. And I feel like I'm going to get so much more out of another viewing of this as I kind of chew on it a, a lot more. David Lynch has been somebody who I slept on for a long time. I didn't, and it wasn't anything where like I felt like he was too pretentious or hoity-toity because I, I'd, I'd seen some Twin Peaks um, and enjoyed that. And, uh, and I think he's a fascinating person, but it just, it was never a thing for me to like, just dive into the movies. I, I, I have had this like, uh, yearning to kind of just dive into his movies over the last couple of years. It started when I finally sat down and watched Dune and the eighties Dune is probably the least Lynch film of any of his films from what I can gather but I still was just fascinated by what he did trying to adapt that and how difficult that book is to adapt. Yet he did a miraculous job given what kind of went on in the making of that. And so that got me to watch blue velvet, which was one that I hadn't seen. And it was partially because, and I told this story on the episode that I did, my mom saw that uh, years and years ago and hated it with a fiery passion to the point where she still holds a grudge to the guy that suggested they watch it to this day. Um, and so it was sort of like, it sort of got put out of sight, out of mind for a long time because of the age I was when that happened. And then finally getting a chance to revisit it, it was sort of a, it confirmed why she hated it so much. And I got that, which was a fun conversation with my mom when I talked to her about it. I'm like, yeah, I did blue velvet for the show. And I totally get why you hated that. Um, but I loved it. I, I just fascinated by it. And it's something about this idea that like what you're watching, what it's like unreliable narrator. Do you not, what is real? What isn't, what is reality? What is sort of this dream state? Lynch just has this way of like putting things out there. I think he may, his stuff makes you ask all sorts of questions. And then he refuses to answer any of them. Yes. And I love that. Like, there's something about that. I don't want every director to do that. I don't want every film to be that. Sometimes I want to just sit down and watch something mindless that's going to spoon feed me everything because I just need dumb popcorn entertainment. But this is like the difference between having a bowl of sugary cereal and having like a really good breakfast and... And there's something to that, that I feel like for a long time, I just sort of didn't ignore, but didn't seek out. And now I'm like, I just want more of it. I just want to go start watching. I'm doing a racer head in a couple of weeks. I've never seen oh, that. Fantastic. And that's, I can't wait for that. Um, but yeah, I had a, I had a banger of a time with this as I, especially the more I process it and the more like I take in sort of what happened. Um, and there's so many layers and, and so much, to this movie, I found a, uh, a YouTube video, a video essay. This guy broke down, um, uh, blue, or not Blue Velvet, uh, Mulholland Drive. It's about an hour long, uh, but I am going to put the link to it in the show notes because I do think that if it's, and he puts right in the beginning of it, he's like, all right, 
spoiler alert, not just because we're going to be discussing the movie, but because we're going to be diving really, really deep into it, and you may not want that yet. So it's sort of the type of thing, listen to his spoiler alert if you do go to that link, but I think that if you like this movie, I think it's absolutely worth it um, because it was a fascinating kind of breakdown of what went on in the movie, and it made me keep chewing on more and more. So now you're familiar with like the history of the film, right? Yes. And so, so that was one of the things I knew of, and I was fascinated by this idea that this started off as a made for TV movie for a pilot because he wanted to, he now here's my thing. I don't know. Cause it's kind of varying reports. Did he want to make a series or was it sort of, he felt like he had to go that route again because the previous move because lost highway hadn't been like a huge hit. I'm not, I'm a little kind of 50, 50 on that. I don't know if he's spoken to that. I think ABC was willing to take a chance because twin peaks, especially in its first season was a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And I think they were hoping to get some of that again, especially, uh, you know, this was around the start of the time when all of the attention was going to cable. Yeah, and the Sopranos and shows like that, um, and then I think they saw the pilot Lynch put together, which I think you can find pretty easily, and we're it's it's very similar to like the first ninety minutes of this movie, and we're kind of like ass, and then he got some more funding, like brought the cast back, reshot some stuff, added some new scenes, and created this movie. Like what I find miraculous about this movie is that. It should not work. Like, nothing about this movie should work. No. And yet, everything does, I think. It, it, it doesn't. And, and I, this is another analogy that I've used. I heard somewhere where getting a film made is like throwing a dart from orbit and hitting a bullseye. Like, the, just, just that, just getting the film made is a miracle in itself. But this idea that, like, the, you're right. On paper, this shouldn't work. None of this should should work for a film. How? When have you ever heard of a pilot not getting picked up and then becoming a major theatrical release uh, at all? That that just doesn't happen. Like you don't get money to do uh, a lot of stuff. Like I can think of, you know, it, it reminds me a little bit of like the original Star Trek series and how they made the pilot. CBS, I think it was CBS, was like meh. I'm not so sure. And so in steps Lucy, like, no, 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 no. This is, this is good. Let's, let's make another pilot. You'll, you'll watch it again. And they liked the second one. And you know, 60 years later, we have how much Star Trek. And, uh, I saw in an interview Lynch was giving about this movie saying basically by the end of it, like it wanted to be a two and a half hour theatrical movie. I just didn't know that when I started and like that, but that's what this thing wanted to be. And like listening to him talk about writing and making movies is fascinating because he's just wired different than a lot of people. And the way have, he describes stuff is so good. I was gonna say, have you ever read um, the piece for premier magazine that David Foster Wallace wrote? Um, following Lynch around the set of Lost Highway, which is, is like one of my favorite bits of film writing. I ever. have not. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty, that again, it's pretty easy to find online. I, I would, I would like, it's not about this movie, but it, mm -hmm. it goes deep into like what it's like to be on set 
with Lynch and like your sense of his process and how his main concern seems to be just getting what's in his head on the screen. What the odd, like what the reaction is, is kind of like a much lesser concern. Yeah. Um, there, one of the things I, I saw was Justin Thoreau in this movie said in an interview that he didn't have the entire script. He would get pages day by day. Um, and he asked David Lynch if the cowboy would appear again in the film. And according to him, Lynch's answer was, I don't know. We'll find out together. Like that, I feel like is such an encapsulation of what he does. Like he just, it almost feels like he's just at the whim of whatever is coming into his brain. And he's just trying to put it out there for people to see. And like, I love seeing interviews with David Lynch and somebody will ask him a direct question and he'll just give him a little, little smirk and a little smile. Like, nah, I'm not answering that. Cause it's just, it, it's so great because he's a true kind of artist in that sense. And then he's going to put this art out there, this thing out there and then let you interpret it. Um, however it, whatever it's going to mean to you, like he's got his ideas. Um, there was another one where somebody asked him about 3d in films and he's like, look, if an idea comes into my head that needs to be done in 3d, I'll do 3d. Like he doesn't care about the medium necessarily. And, you know, people say that, that, the stuff he's putting on is inscrutable to me, like especially the Justin Thoreau stuff in Mulholland drive is clearly Lynch working some stuff out mm -hmm. around his own feelings around filmmaking. Like or people say Eraserhead is super weird, but it's also like this dude is anxious about having a baby and is scared of impending fatherhood. And that's like, to me, like the themes of the movies are really kind of crystal clear. Um, obviously they're not, you know, what he's putting on screen is not super obvious in terms of A equals A, but I also feel like emotionally it's it's absolutely hitting all those marks. Oh, for sure. Because he he's doing things in a way where he wants to evoke emotion in the person viewing it. And he's putting he's he's working his stuff out, but he's not just putting down the words, this is how I feel. He's giving it to you in a way that then you can absorb it. And you might not even realize exactly how you're taking that in. Um, but you're going to, it's going to be different for every person. Um, just as it's different for him putting it out there, which is kind of, it's, it's interesting. Like this, this breakdown that I watched about the movie was fascinating because it sort of took like, it took one level of, of looking at the movie, which is, you know, the whole dream versus reality. Uh, in the Hollywood dream and all that. But then it went to uh, another level underneath that of how, you know, the dream sequences in the movie are, are less just this person's dreams of what they had, but more of sort of a universal dream of Hollywood. And then, and it, it really, really dives into a lot better than I can articulate uh, having only watched the film once, but just amazing, amazing stuff. Um, and it's just the more I watch and, and read and learn about David Lynch, the more I'm just like, I just want to absorb more of his content because it's fascinating. Even if some of it I don't get or some of it is like, like there's parts of Blue Velvet that are rough, that are just rough to watch. And, but, but at the same time, they're fascinating. And even bits and pieces of this were like, well, that's just weird. Uh, like the whole scene in the diner with the guy talking about his dream. It seems mm -hmm. so like on the surface, 
it seems so out of place because it has nothing to do with anything else going on, but he manages to find a way to like work this scenario back in towards the end of the film. And you realize that, well, no, it doesn't have anything literally to do with events that are unfolding, but it absolutely has so much to do with everything that's been going on. And I found that really, really interesting as well. Um, And a lot of the scenes I think work moment to moment, like, I was always engaged in whatever was going on in a certain scene, whether it's mm-hmm. kind of the botched the botched hit or Thoreau coming home and finding his wife in bed with Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> was... And I mean, honestly, like I, I'd gone probably about, you know, 12 years without having seen this film and the stuff that stuck with me, the stuff that I, I always go back to is, is everything involving uh, the Naomi, the Naomi Watts character and, uh, you know, club silencio and, um, you know, the audition scene, like that's the stuff I really remembered. And it was only after like reviewing lately, even, even viewing it last week, I sort of didn't have a general sense of the cowboy until this viewing. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Fascinating thing too. I, I learned was that the um, Monty Montgomery who plays the cowboy, number one, I noticed right away, he has no eyebrows and that's like a yes. great way to make somebody just look weird. Like take somebody's eyebrows off. There's a, there was a filter on TikTok that would remove your eyebrows from the the video, and it just, I I see it. And I'm just like, no, no, it's not right. And so like he looks weird, and then you learn that his costuming, he showed up with his own costuming, and those were actual uh, clothes from a uh, is a golden era Western movie star. Uh, is it Joe Mix? I want to say the name was, but he was. I'm probably getting it wrong, but he was like the first Western star. And David Lynch was like, it's yeah, Tom, 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 yes. And and it was David Lynch saying like, yeah, he showed up with his own wardrobe and it's worth a fortune and he's just wearing it. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And the, the that character is such a, uh, a thing I expect in a David Lynch movie, like a character that just, what, 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 why, what is, what is this cowboy? Like, why is he there? Why do they have to meet him where they do? And he just sort of shows up randomly. Cause after that he shows up again, like two more times. Which out apparently of, is what happens if you do bad. Yeah. And, and just out of nowhere, uh, with no like buildup, he's just like the cowboys there. And then you see him one more time in a background of another shot and that's it. Um, and he's got that really just weird cryptic dialogue. Um, that again, you, you sort of think of, and it's like, it shouldn't work, but it does. It's fascinating. Um, you mentioned the audition scene and that audition scene is like, it's what you expect. If you know nothing about making movies and all you know about Hollywood is sort of what Hollywood has told you it's like, that's what you expect an audition to be like. And, and nowadays we sort of, because we're able to kind of pull the curtain back and see, um, on places like YouTube, sort of how auditions more often look, but that whole scene, Naomi Campbell in that scene, like that should have won her wh- whatever award she won for this movie. I feel like that scene alone won them. I feel like one of the great tragedies is I feel like Naomi Watts like emerges in this film Watts. as a like on. Can I swear? Uh, PG-13. We'll go there. 
on effing fire. <laughs> like, she is so good in this movie. In, like, in everything she does, when she's playing kind of the, the naive, hopeful Betty versus kind of the, the sort of haggard, str- like, strung out Betty near the, uh, Diane near the end. Mm-hmm. And that audition scene was like, I was, I was just so blown away by her. And I feel like I wish her subsequent career had lived up to the promise of this movie. Like, she's been in good movies. I think, you know, The Ring's a good movie. And she, but it, it ne- like, she's never been in something that has blown me away like this. And I feel like the only other time where I saw an act, like when I saw a performance in a movie where I was like, this person is a, is amazing, I can't take my eyes off them, was uh, Kate Winslet in Heavenly Creatures. But I feel like Kate Winslet's career has kind of lived up to that. Not that she's made, like, nothing, like only great movies, but I feel like she's she's become, like, one of the premier actresses of her generation. I feel, I feel like Naomi Watts showed us so much of what she could do in this movie, and I, I wish that uh, she had lived up to the promise of it. But because, holy cow, is she good in this. She is amazing in this. And she had been around uh, Hollywood and in Australia for, you know, a decade before this. Um, she got started kind of late 80s, but it was it was this, uh, the whole thing of just kind of bouncing from, from one audition to another, small smaller parts here and there. I remember her in Tank Girl uh, as Jet Girl. Um. But it was she never really like took off. This movie did, and I knew that Mulholland Drive was sort of her breakout role. I had heard that, but I didn't understand how good she was in this until watching it. Because the way the movie's structured, when you start out, you meet her, and she is this very naive, you know, just came from the from what is it, uh, Blue Falls, uh, Ontario, or wherever, you know, somewhere tiny town going to LA and like the first third of the movie she's very naive and her her dialogue and her acting feels you know stiff and like a little weird um at first and it's in that audition scene where you sort of see things start to change and as as it evolves and I realize what's going on and sort of what's unfolding in the movie I get a better like I go back I think back and I appreciate those early scenes with her even more now because it sort of makes a lot more sense what's happening in them. And her performance is just, just from start to finish. It's so good. And she did say that she was really glad the pilot didn't get picked up because she didn't like uh, the kind of one dimensionalness of the performance prior to that last 45 minutes that they added on the darker stuff. And I agree because I think that just added so many layers to what she was doing but man, she was good. And to her credit, you know, The Ring, The Ring Two, she did uh, she did work with Peter Jackson on King Kong, um, which, she, pretty, which she was pretty great big. in. Yeah, she was like she was like my favorite thing about that movie, um, acting against a green screen. I believed her the entire way through. Mm-hmm. That movie is that movie is not one I think is all that hot, but I think she is great in it. I think she was great in that. I mean, and she has kept working. So uh, whether it's Eastern Promise, you know, she's worked with Cronenberg. She's worked with uh, um, Lynch again on Inland Empire. Um, I guess, oh, Susie Rabbit. So she just did a voice in that. Um, But, I mean, to her credit, she keeps working. But you're right in that she never reached that kind of upper echelon that stratosphere that you feel like she she had a rocket strapped to her with this movie and it should have just taken her to the moon um 
because she's fantastic. I, I love seeing her and stuff. And it's there's like a realism. There's a there's a realism and vulnerability to what she can bring to screen. And you saw all even of that in, in the, this movie. Even in the big yeah, even in the big love scene with Laura Herring, where she's just kind of whispering to her, "I'm in love with you." Like that is so powerful. Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And even more so, again, as the movie unfolds and you start to learn that that Betty isn't who you think she is. Um, now, how do you OK, so how do you sort of interpret this movie? I'm curious what your thoughts are in terms of like the reality and dreams and Hollywood and all of that. Like what sort of how does it break down for you? Because we don't okay, we don't I have mean, a restraint on the, spoilers. So yeah, with the caveat. That uh, making sense is, to me, with this movie, somewhat beside the point. Like, what I like about this movie is how it makes me feel in the moment when I'm watching mm-hmm. it. Yes. And what, what images stick with me. Like, so I don't have a general sense of, like, exactly what is going on in Club Silencio, for instance. Oh, right, right, but right. To me, uh, but to me, it is uh, very clearly that Diane Selvig has ordered a... Uh, hit on her former girlfriend Camille, Camilla, uh, to be killed, and is racked with guilt, and is also uh, like dreaming or imagining like an alternate world where things worked out much better. There's this whole bit about Camilla beating her out for an audition at a dinner scene, and that is clearly played up in the dream sequence where the the Camilla, who's not Laura Herring, um you know, is sort of foisted upon the director by uh, these kind of shady underworld figures. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, the blue box and the key, to me, are all tied into that, along with uh, whatever kind of evil lurks behind the diner. It's sort of a manifestation of the evil she's perpetrated through having this murder ordered. And, I mean, essentially, like, it broad strokes, to me, that's what's going on. But... There's yeah. obviously like a lot more happening there. I, I think like one, I mean Lynch has always been pretty open about one of his like major influences being the Wizard of Oz, and sort of how most of Wizard of Oz is ostensibly a dream with the people in Dorothy's life cast in different roles. I think this is uh, doing a similar thing. Yeah, yeah, I get a lot of that from it, especially from this first viewing. Is sort of. You're right, Denise or Diane. I keep one. I don't know why in my head I keep wanting to call her Denise. Diane Selwyn was, you know, young actor, uh, prospective actress. Comes to L.A., uh, tries to make it big, gets involved with Camilla, um, and that goes off the rails. And so she has this dream and constructs this fantasy world inside of her dream, where she didn't get the parts, not because she wasn't willing to, you know, sleep her way to the top or anything, but it was because like the, the conspiracy of Hollywood behind everything. And, and it's really interesting that way. Now that there, there is a, another layer to this um, that I found really fascinating was the idea that Diane, uh, we never meet the actual Diane and what we get are different aspects of her personality playing out in this dream. So there is a part of Diane that is the naive young girl that came from the Midwest. Um, But there's another part of her that is Camilla slash Rita. Um, And that is the part of her that sort of did go down that path of the casting couch and using that to further her career. Um, And that like the cowboy 
embodies sort of the the spirit of Hollywood itself, and that's why the cowboy is the one that ultimately tells uh, Justin Thoreau's director, like, you know, you can have all these other parts of your movie, but this this bit uh, here is not under your control. Like, this fate is a thing that we do. And that that, like, the whole movie is sort of a collective dream of Hollywood. And I thought that was really interesting. Again, the, the guy that did the video goes into way more detail and can explain it in a way that makes a lot more sense than I do. Um, but what I like is that with this movie, both of those interpretations are correct. There's, there's not a right interpretation to this movie. Like I love the fact that you have people from her real life, uh, sort of bleeding into the dream in different ways. But yet there's a, there's the one character of the guy that runs the hotel, uh, cookie who shows up again as oh, the no. MC at, uh, Oh yeah. At the, uh, Silencio club. And you had Coco. Um, mm-hmm. and there's this, also this really great feeling. So wizard of Oz, um, I have heard was a big influence and I didn't know this until afterwards. Uh, but I got a lot of sunset Boulevard feel, from this movie and then to find Absolutely. out that, that sunset Boulevard was a big influence on this movie. in in particular, I was like, okay, I totally got that. Cause I just like that hotel apartment complex that she goes to felt mm-hmm. like the house from there and seeing like the Paramount gate um, and all of that kind of stuff. Like there were so many moments in there and you can tell Lynch loves that old golden era a lot too. And I, I get a lot of Sunset Boulevard, and I've never really heard this mentioned by Lynch, but I also get a lot of Day of the Locust in this movie. In terms of the, uh, especially like you said, like the uh, kind of a, the L.A. apartment complex and mm-hmm. sort of the 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 rot at the center of Hollywood. Yeah, like, to me, like Day of the Locust is uh, to me like all over this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's really cool to see like those influences bleeding into it and then, but, but all filtered through Lynch's brain and the way that he sees things and kind of interprets them and then spews that back out to us, um, is really cool. Like the, the weird dude behind the, the Winkies, which I loved that too. Winkies diner. I was like, Oh, that was, that was a Denny's at one point and they just had to change the name of it. Um, which was great, but like that guy sitting out back of that diner who's got like mushrooms growing off of him and he's just covered in dirt. Yeah. Like, what is he? We don't know. It's never explained. Uh, but he he's there. Uh, and at, and he has it's the blue box at one point and whatever he's doing ain't good. That was, unfortunately, I will say this. I had that jump scare spoiled for me. Um, because it's, okay. it's been shows up on those kind of top jump scare lists. And every once in a while I'll watch some of these lists of like, Oh yeah, you know, the one from jaws and all this. And then that one's been mentioned so many times, um, because it's such a good one that you just don't see coming. Um, that I kind of knew what was coming. It still, still startled me a little bit, uh, because just the way he built it up and the reaction to it, what I didn't know. And I had, because I never really see it like in place was I love the way the audio is for that whole scene because it's building, it's building and building. You get the jump scare and then all the audio is muted as he's reacting to it and falling down. 
And that to me was like an extra effect, kind of an extra punch from the jump scare because now I'm disoriented because you're not used to that. You're used to hearing like the scream or something or the, the, the ah reaction that somebody gives in that moment. And so to take that away, I thought it was kind of neat too. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that in here. I love, I love the idea of taking a thing and sort of not giving you the version of it that you're expecting. Like learning later on that, uh, the hitman that got hired was, uh, in her dream version of him, he's like incompetent because she kind of, she feels guilty about hiring a hit person on her former lover. So in the dream version, he's kind of an idiot. And that whole scene played out. I, I loved that. I watched it twice. Like I, I got partway like through that one. I'm like, brothers movie. yeah, ex- exactly. That feels very Coen brothers. Um, and it just kept going. Like at first it was just, it started off feeling like something that Tarantino would write with the dialogue and the way it's just two guys talking like in LA. And then it immediately, as soon as he pulls the the pistol out, shoots the guy. I was like, Oh, okay. All right. And then shooting the wall and you hear the woman scream from the next room over. So he's like, Oh man, I'm not going to go deal with that. And like that whole thing. And then it goes sideways and he's wrestling with her on the floor and tripping over the like, uh, surge protectors she's got stapled down and all of that. And then as he's dragging her through the hallway, you see the janitor down at the other end of the hall staring at him. And he's like, <sighs> you can just see it on his face. Like, I got to deal with this too. Because just one thing after the other, after the other is a brilliantly done scene. Yeah. And like, I think on a cursory watch, that scene could be like, People could think like, well, that like, what does that have to do with anything that's going on here? But but like you said, I, I think I do think this all sort of hangs together way more than it should. Um, one thing I find interesting about Mulholland Drive is is you know it got a lot of critical acclaim at the time, and uh, especially like uh, it, it. I think it was a mini comeback for Lynch because I think Firewalk with Me uh, didn't do well, and Lost Highway was kind of a disappointment. And this sort of, I think you got a Best Director Oscar nomination out of it. And people really like Naomi Watts. I think it, it did really well at Cannes. Um, but it seems like in the last 20 years, at least on the critical end, this is emerging as like the movie of of this century. I'd say, like, I think the Sight and Sound poll came out mm-hmm. uh, a few months ago. And I think the only other movie from this century that ranked higher than Mulholland Drive was In the Mood for Love, which, fair. Um, and I think the British film critics got together and this was this was considered, like, the greatest movie of the, of the century so far. Um, and I, my, my, my brain immediate, doesn't immediately go to that, and I don't know if it's just a consensus pick because this movie, uh, you know, might be, like, genetically engineered to appeal to critics. But I also, like, don't know if I can think of too many movies... I can topple it. I mean, like in the mood for love is probably one of them. Uh, Spirited away, probably. But yeah, I, I was actually going to mention Spirited Away would be one that I would put there just because that movie. Oh man, that movie. Um, it, I'm going to need more time with this, I think, before I can put it on a list like that for me personally. But that's just because it's 22 years after it came out, and I'm just now seeing it. Um, 
but it is fat. And then to wrap your head around the fact that this movie was a pilot for a uh, attempted pilot for a TV series that got rejected in part because as the story goes, the executive that was watching the tape was watching it at like 6 a.m. from across the room while he was like doing other things. So whether he was really paying attention to it or not, it's hard to say, but it basically a failed TV pilot became what is on a lot of people's list for greatest film of the 21st century. That doesn't like that shouldn't that sentence shouldn't work. And no, yet, it's, it's astounding to me. I, and I did like, you know, I, I sent you my list of like, these, these are some of my favorite movies. This is absolutely one of them. But, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I, I feel like, and I feel like there are like sometimes this isn't what I want. Like you said, this, sometimes this isn't what I want out of a movie. But when I do want this out of a movie, like this is probably one of the best uh, examples of being able to get that. Like you know, sometimes I just want to watch uh, Indiana Jones punch Nazis. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It, it, I. It's hard for me to say. Like I can. I can't sit here and say this is going to go on one of my you know top ten favorite movies of all time because favorite and best are such a different type of list um but it's a movie that fascinates me that i want to watch more of it's sort of like i hadn't seen uh, the apartment until just uh, about a year year and a half ago and i'd heard about it but it just was one of those that uh, older older cinema 50s 60s and kind of earlier even maltese falcon was one um that it I just think everyone's got those yeah it just wasn't in my wheelhouse and so like because I didn't go fully down the sort of film school route that I had started on, I kind of just skipped those things and started working, you know, doing other things. And I'm going back and watching these, and it's just, they're fascinating to me. They're amazing. And it's like, no, these, these movies are not only, not only do they live up to the hype, but in a lot of ways they exceed the hype that I've already been given for them. Um, and this is one of those types of movies where I've heard so many good things about Mulholland Drive, but because younger me was like, I don't know if I really like David Lynch. I'm not sure if I feel like that. And I sort of slept on it. And now I'm coming back to it. And and part of it is probably I wouldn't have appreciated it as much in my 20s as I do now. But just like, holy cow, this is amazing. Part of me wants to live in the universe where this became a series. Even if it only ran for a couple of seasons like a Twin Peaks because... I'm curious. I don't know how it would work. It wouldn't be what we have in this movie. Like, because Lynch has even said um, that he had no idea what he was going to do to finish this out. And he just sort of sat down one day and ideas started to come to him. But like, I think it would be canceled in like after three episodes, (laughs) it would have been like on the air. Like, I wonder where he would have tried to go with it It is the curious thing to me because you can't do what he did in this movie and make it a series. It doesn't work. Like this is a self-contained story, but where does that story go? If it's trying to be stretched out and longer and what is he trying to tell at that point? And it just fascinates me. Like it's going to be one of those that's going to pick in my brain for a while. Like, man, this could have made, this could have made an interesting thing, but at the same time, I don't want it. I want what I got this, this story that we got because you go an hour and a half through this story uh, being told and it starts off. There is no, there's the, so the opening with the jitterbugging 
my my note was like, oh, I wasn't expecting uh, swing dancing to open up the movie, but you know, then as I thought about it more, it's like, but it is David Lynch, so I kind of get it. Um, but there's that, and then there's like the the shot that goes across the bed, and it ends on the pillow, and just sort of goes into the pillow, and. Yes. It's kind of giving, like, now I look at it and I realize, oh, okay, this is sort of telling us we're going to sleep and we're entering a dream. And then the more I think about those early stages of the movie, especially when um, Betty first shows up in L.A., uh, it's it's shot, everything is bright and saturated colors and very soft focus um, and feels very much dreamlike and sort of idealized L.A. And she's having... This, you know, you know, this very cheesy conversation with the old lady that I assumed were her grandparents. And then she's just like, well, anyway, bye, and, and leaves them. And they get in the other car and were, like, creeping me out with how big their grins were it's- as they were riding in that car. I'm like, oh, something about this doesn't feel right. Um, now we're in a David Lynch movie. <laughs> exactly. It's like, oh, there's the Lynchian. Um, but, like... As I, as I think about it now, it's such a dream sequence throughout the first, like, especially that first third of the movie. Um, and then you see it start to break down. And you see the dream start to, like, all the luster start to come off of it. Because there's these moments, everything's always, daytime is always so brightly lit in this movie. And I like that. Uh, because it contrasts really well with all the nighttime scenes being very dark, but you're starting to see more nighttime scenes. You're starting to see just weird, like cracks in the facade. And once they, once they go into Diane's apartment. Yes. Once they like break into Diane's apartment, which by the way, when, when I talk about like rough stuff to watch the constant showing of the, the body on the bed and lingering on that, I'm like, Oh man, just, I, I don't, okay. I get it. She's dead. I don't need to, but yet, at the same time, I can't look away from it because it's really effective. So, it's weird how stuff like that can can be can get that kind of reaction out of me, even though I know it's you know just a, a dummy that's been laid out on the bed and made to look that way. It's still like they did a good job with it. <laughs> Kudos to the production design. Um, but yeah, that that's where it turns. And like I say, that audition scene too is another one for me, where you start to see. Because you see Betty, who to this point has been the like definition of Midwest girl goes to L.A. to want to be an actor. And she's there for a day and has already got an audition. And she's got, you know, the aunt that uh, that left her stuff and all of this. But then when she's in that audition, which. Again, it's sort of the the Hollywoodized version of what an audition looks like. And you've got the director sitting there with a cast member that she's going to be acting with. And there's just a casting director who's not even involved in the project, just there, hanging out. Um, and the cast member she's reading the scene with is a creepy old guy. <laughs> and the thing starts, and you see her go from uncomfortable but when she starts to act out the scene, the way that Betty changes in that scene, I was like, ooh, there's more going on here than I thought. Like, this is getting interesting. Yes. And then, like, immediately after that, you have that 
scene where she and Justin Theroux's characters sort of like lock eyes for the first time. Like the camera movements on that are mm-hmm. seem different than what you'd seen before in the movie. Like I, yeah, yep. I feel um, this is a very, it's a very, it's a very rich text. I guess it is. Even okay, even going back to the diner scene um, that ends with the jump scare. One of the things I noticed in that were camera movements. A simple, how many times have you seen a scene set in a diner in a movie and it's, you know, it's uh, just over the shoulder and it's a shot of one person talking. You see the, you know, the outline of the other actor and then you flip it 180 degrees and you just do back and forth coverage and you, you do your shots. We've seen that so many times. And here, a very simple trick or not even a trick, but just a very simple thing of taking that camera and just giving it movement. It's floating almost. So again, there's that dreamlike quality to things that are going on, but it's also unsettling. You're not quite, you're never comfortable because the, the image is always moving and, and back and forth. And uh, Fischler, who plays that character, is a very unique looking person too. And so I really liked that because it's the little things like that that just make that scene so much more interesting to watch and you're, 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 caught in that moment with it in a way that yeah, is and so he different. had not he had he had not been around that much when this movie came out i think in the intervening 20 years he's definitely become a hey it's that guy character actor mm-hmm. yeah um which which sort of takes away from it a little bit because you're like oh it's this guy but um i don't know so were you surprised by how much you liked it watching it this time or or did you kind of know going in that that this was something you'd think you would enjoy. So given the way that blue velvet was for me, um, I had a feeling that I was going to appreciate the movie. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm predisposed to like most movies. Uh, it takes a lot for me to not like something, even, even something that's not very good or that I don't love. I can usually find something, you know, uh, it was enjoyable. I didn't feel like I waste. It's very rare for me to feel like I wasted my time with a film at at any stage. Um, But I had a feeling like, okay, I'm probably going to appreciate this movie, but I don't know if I'll get it. And what I found was I, not only did I like it, I liked it a lot more than I thought I was going to like it. Um, And again, the, the, the more time between when I watched it and when I think about it, the more I want to go back to it and watch it again and see what else I can kind of pull from it, which is uh, always for me a good sign. So I would say that yeah, I, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. So was yeah, like, I was a little worried, like kind of, <laughs> I was a little worried going into this episode um, because obviously like, like when you covered blue velvet on the podcast, uh, it thinks like, I felt like you were mixed and your guest was very negative. And I was like, like, I hope I don't have to go in and like, sort of like, cause it's, this is like, it's hard for me to defend it on sort of like, if, if someone's going to say it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to be like, you know, like, <laughs> well, and, and I think, I, because I think there are a lot of people for whom this movie like does not work, which mm-hmm. again, fair. <laughs> yeah, no. And, and that is, that is something that I think is a very good point to make, which is, it is not, this is not an accessible film. And, and, and I say that in a way, it's like you've got to really be of the mindset to, uh, to sort of go with it because 
certain movies, whether they're kind of, you know, popcorn movies or, uh, you know, I, I always like to use like martial arts movies as another example of you kind of know what you're getting into with a movie, uh, especially an older movie starring Jackie Chan. Like you just know what you're getting. And so you get that mindset. You're fine with Lynch. I feel like as I've watched more of his stuff, it's definitely that same thing, just in a very, very different way. You have to kind of be ready for what you're going to get while at the same time never being prepared for what you're going to get because there is no way to be prepared for what David Lynch is going to put in front of you. I've learned. <laughs> but you can sort of be open to it. Now, I know many, many people that I could tell uh, I, I would never suggest watching Mulholland Drive to, not because I don't think they'd get it, but because I don't think they would enjoy it. I don't think they would want to be in that mindset. They're just That's not who they are, um, which is fine. Absolutely fine. But I think that if you are open to it, it's, it's fascinating and there's so much you can get out of it. And it this is the type of movie that you watch and then you sit around at the diner at 2 a.m. talking about it and and discussing what happened and what you took from it and sort of how it can relate to other things that you have watched. And maybe it spawns a conversation that leads you to watching a movie from somebody you've never heard of before. Um, you know, I, I had... Uh, a few weeks ago, I did a movie called Fish Story, which is a Japanese film. I don't know if you've ever seen that or not. I had never heard of it before. Um, and it's the only way I can describe this movie is it's a Japanese film where a punk rock song from 1975 eventually saves the world. And that doesn't make any sense. And the movie itself jumps around in time. But I watched it and I was just like blown away by how much I liked it at the end of it. And it's the same type of feeling I'm getting from like Lynch in that it's, it's a movie that's open to a lot of interpretation. And that movie had the language barrier of it being Japanese. So not only is it structured very differently from a Hollywood film, but I'm also watching it in a language that I don't speak. And yet I took so much from it there. And that's kind of what I've been getting from watching David Lynch is, it's not structured like a, like a movie that I would, it's not a direct, you know, A to B to C movie. And in some ways he is kind of speaking in a language that I, I only know a little bit of. Um, but it's fascinating to me and it's weird too, which I kind of like. There's something I like about the weirdness of, of what he does. Like the Silencio, the whole Club Silencio stuff just comes out of nowhere and it's just, it's so bizarre and it reminded me of the bizarre, scene but also super like i thought deeply moving oh very very much so yeah. very much it reminded me of the scene in blue velvet where they go to um what's his name's apartment and he's dean, he, dean stockwell's place and he does his little presentation for them is he, he sings the song it's very similar oh, I mean, in, in feel to that let's it's, it's Two Roy Orbison songs too, which I that guess helps. <laughs> helps. Um, Very but different, no, I, I think, though, uh, but, but yeah, like it was that same type of thing, and it's just I, there was something about that that I was just drawn. It's that it's the bizarre that draws you in and just makes you like pay attention to what's going on, and it's sort of I I come away from them like I don't know what I just watched, but I liked it. Yeah, and I feel like it's one of those things where I don't necessarily want to take the watch apart too much with it because I like the way it plays on the unconscious as well. Mm -hmm. 
I think I think you know, I have very interesting dreams after I watch a David Lynch movie. <laughs> so I I, I like I, I I'm worried if I pick it apart too much, uh, it'll like the magic. Like I'll I'll break the spell. In some ways, yeah. Like for instance, why does that director? Why was he carrying a golf club just randomly? He just happened to have a golf club he could beat that car with. Now, there's supposedly a scene longer where he talks about he was on the golf course, but I didn't know that until like a few minutes before we started recording this show. So my thought, as I'm watching the movie, I'm like, all right, dude, just walks around with a golf club. Sure, why not? It's L.A. People do weird stuff. Um, the cowboy, just being a cowboy. Who, by the way, Monty Montgomery the way they lit everything and he remind he looked to me like a like several photocopied versions of William Sadler is what he reminded me of he had that kind of structure to him that sort of look like a like if you rounded off all the edges of William Sadler you'd get get him in that role which i thought was kind of fun there was a few different people in this that i'd see that and i'm like it reminds me of but not quite um and then seeing like, then this is random stuff like Billy Ray Cyrus <laughs> that cracked me up when he yes. walks into the room and there's just Billy Ray Cyrus laying in the bed with his wife. And, uh, and that whole scene too, the way it played out was so surreal because here's the director comes home, Adam walks into his house. No, you know, he's calling for his wife. She doesn't answer, walks into the bedroom. She's in bed with Billy Ray Cyrus and starts screaming at him. And he just turns around and leaves. And, but he takes her, uh, like, box of jewelry. And then the whole thing where he's pouring the paint on that. Meanwhile, the background music is just like this, like, upbeat, peppy jazz number going on. Yeah. That just feels <laughs> so weird and out of place. And I loved all of that. And what? then to... <laughs> I, I know we lost Angelo Aldamente recently, but I mm-hmm. think this is probably even more so than the twin peaks uh score like this is probably my favorite score of his and he appears briefly in the movie too yeah he's one of the one of the the shady underworld figures saying like this is uh who's obsessed with with espresso yes him uh and he was paired with uh one of my favorite character actors dan hadaya uh who i love i love seeing he will forever be the captain from running scared for me uh, no matter no matter what I see him in, I know a lot of people will equate him with Nick Tortelli, but for me, Running Scared made the impression on me as a kid. Um, but like that whole scene was bizarre when they're uh, after Adam leaves the house and their gorilla of a goon goes in. That scene cracked me up because <laughs> he walks into the house and the wife just jumps on him. And starts trying to beat him up. And I'm like, you're not doing anything to that guy. He's man mountain. And he's just like one punch and finishes it off and just leaves. Like it may, it was another one of those where it's like, I don't know what just happened, but that, that entertained me. <laughs> and I feel like the, those discrete scenes, which, uh, you know, you could, you could lift out of the movie, I think add up to a whole, I, I think, uh, cause especially because they're, they're kind of funny. It keeps the movie from being, just kind of a especially at the end like a where you know Naomi Watts shoots herself spoilers um from from being just something you you leave being like that was 
nothing but emotionally draining. Because I've been to movies that are nothing but emotionally draining. Because I feel like this one is so kind of like bursting with ideas. You leave it, and like you said, you want to talk about it after. Um, you know, I hadn't thought about this until just now, but because this was one of my like uh, first dates with uh, with my now wife, I'm like, this is like a great first date. This is like a great early date movie because you can talk a lot about it. Like in the late 90s, I, I went on a date with someone to leaving Las Vegas. Neither of us wanted to look at each other after. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, for me, the movie that uh, that immediately pops to mind when I think of like great movie that I don't necessarily ever want to watch again is Monster. Like mm-hmm. that movie's fantastic, and the performances in it are unreal. But I don't need to watch it again. Like I'm fine. And this this movie does have those moments of levity and like just something different going on. It's also a very different movie, but it do, it doesn't fall down the the hole of being completely dour and nihilistic, which I think it could easily have done. Yeah, I don't necessarily think of. Like, I, I think rewatchability has its place, and but I don't think that's the only metric you can give against a movie. Like, I really liked uh, Richard oh. Linklater's Boyhood, but that movie is like four and a half hours long. Right. And you know, it, like I found that movie like deeply affecting, but I don't know if I would watch it again. But I think for me, it depends on like the reason that I wouldn't watch it again. Like something like that. Okay, it's four and a half hours long, and is it effective? Yes, but like I don't need to watch it. Like Monster is one it gave me a lot it gave me a very visceral emotional reaction to the film that I don't necessarily want to experience again another one that did this for me was um I watched this with a friend of mine and it was really funny because he just picked it and a couple of us sat down and watched man bites dog and I don't know if you've ever seen oh, yeah. that but that got done and man bites dog. the three of us got done watching and it was like all right, who wants to go take a shower first? Um, yeah. Like, uh, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go home and take like four, and then movie was fascinating. Let's never talk about it again, kind of thing. Like, it was just, it, it's that feel, that that grimy feel that you get from some movies where they're really, really good. And I am in a, it, it, at least a small way, who I am today because of experiencing that. But I don't necessarily want to go through it again. Um, and something like I know this for is... me too. Get like getting older has made. When I would say in my like like late teens, early twenties, I was up for anything. I feel like in terms of watching movies, and mm-hmm. I am much less up for thing things now. Like I was sort of, I, I can watch the most extreme stuff imaginable. It doesn't matter. <laughs> and now I, I just I don't have a lot of time for it. No, and I, I think I don't know if just I've I've changed as a person or what. Yeah, and and I do think that, that that matters. Like the way we are, who we are when we watch a movie is different every single time. And you know, I I'm pretty certain that had I watched this when I was um, 19, 20, 21 years old, I wouldn't have liked it. I I wouldn't have gotten it. Um, I had a similar experience the first time I watched uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick. I got done watching it, and I was like. Okay, I don't... What was so cool about that? Why did people say that was so great? But I gave it a second try um, because I watched a couple other Ryan Johnson things and I really enjoyed them and I went back and watched Brick again. I'm like, okay, no, I get it now. I'm in a place now in my life after a few years where I can appreciate what that was. And I think that goes a long way 
to your your like or dislike of a movie when you watch it is who you are at the time you're watching that movie, which is why some movies can stand the test of time for people and some don't. Um, because either it's going to take you, it's going to transport you back to who you were when you saw that, or it can't pull that off anymore. And who you are now is so vastly different from who you were then that it doesn't hit the same. Um, so I think that that's a big, like I, I have this conversation a lot because a lot of, I'll have people tell me, you know, Oh, uh, you know, this like not right now, the, the hot button one is MCU movies and they'll, they'll talk about how it's just, they're, these new ones are terrible. They're, they're awful movies. And I'm like, well, what's your metric for awful movie? Because is it watchable? They're all, they're all imminently watchable. Like I have seen things that are unwatchable, uh, that somehow got, you know, distributed. Um, but what was your expectation going into it and who are you now as opposed to who you were when that movie came out or comparing, you know, something like, uh, my, my favorite one was Thor Ragnarok versus Thor Love and Thunder. Both of them are Taika Waititi, who I love. Um, they're very similar movies. But when Ragnarok came out, it was new. It was fresh. It was so different. We hadn't seen that yet, and it was kind of a, a nice new chapter to this type of movie. And then we're retreading a lot of the same things a few years later. It's no longer fresh. It's not going to hit the same way. So now all of a sudden it's terrible. And I think that goes a long way too. So I, I agree. I, and I do think with Marvel, I, I don't blame anyone with sort of getting fatigued by the Marvel movies. Cause oh, there've no, been so many of them and they, they suck up a lot of air. It, what's been interesting for me is um, just when I was getting sort of out uh, like my daughter, who's eight is like, very excited about the new Marvel movie. So she, I went with her yesterday to see uh, Quantum Mania. Mm-hmm. She loved it, and you know, I, I'd rather go see that than something unwatchable. So it was fun going with her to the movies and a movie that we both kind of enjoyed. And you know, kind of like the twelve-year-old comic book nerd that I was, uh, would be astounded that there's a third Ant-Man movie right. anyway. Yeah, and. And I'm with you. Like, if if you're fatigued with Marvel, for instance, it's just, and that's the the you know um, current kind of hot button. But like, if you're fatigued by that, I get it. This this movie is what the 31st movie that they've put out since 2008, something like that. Yes, something like that. I mean, and that's not counting anything that's been on Disney TV Plus show. series wise or uh, any of the five series that were on Netflix. Uh, that are now on Disney plus like that's a lot of content in that period of time to be putting out. Well, it's weird because I think part of the problem now too, is the barrier to entry because even uh, when my daughter was asking about quantum mania, I said, well, you know, we should probably watch the first two Ant-Man movies, (laughs) but then I guess you got to see civil war to understand why in the second one, he's like that. And then do you need to watch Endgame, but if you watch Endgame, you got to watch this. And and eventually, I was just like, I'm sure she'll figure it out. <laughs> like, so we just went to the movie. Yeah, it's really honestly become Marvel Comics in a lot of ways. Yes. Like, just jumping into a random Marvel comic series, you're going to be completely lost at this point. Uh, and it's it's really hard well, what's, to do. It's become Marvel Comics from the 70s now too, which 
Yeah. I feel like the up until Endgame, it felt like it, it was more like 60s Marvel because it was relatively self-contained. It was kind of telling one story, but the movies sort of worked on their own. And I feel like now with the Disney Plus shows and the movies they're making, it's sort of like it's it's sort of like characters who are a little weirder. So you've got like Werewolf by Night TV show and you've got, uh, you know, the, the, the Shang-Chi movie and you've got so... The Eternals, who are like a total, like all these characters that emerged in the 70s in Marvel, yep. who were a little funkier. Um, and so I'm, I do think the audience isn't sparking to all of that as much. Much like how Marvel was, if it wasn't for Star Wars comics, Marvel would have gone like out of business in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then, was... I, then I think in the, in, the, in the 80s, they sort of like, consolidated and the X-Men blew up. And I'm wondering if now that Marvel's going to bring the X-Men and maybe that'll history will repeat itself there too, where the X-Men will rejuvenate the MCU. It could. And I I'm all for that. I am really curious to see what they do with X-Men in general, just because there's so many good characters in there. How do you pare that down? Cause that's, that's a thing that always fascinated me with the Brian Singer X-Men movies was like, how do you choose which characters to go with? Because, mm-hmm there's the part of me that's like start with the originals, but that would be kind of boring because there's been so many characters that are iconic that came after that. So it's, it's great that we live in like the originals. The originals were not what was popular. No, no, they really weren't like, no, it it got popular because of Wolverine and storm and those characters. Um, so yeah, it, it also got popular because it, because it was a soap opera, and I'm like, maybe the X Men should be a TV show. Mm, I'd be down for that. They've got the budget to be so, able to do that kind of stuff now, and plus, I'd like to see them maybe slow down a little on like feature films so that these VFX houses can actually keep up with the content. Yeah, because I feel bad for those guys too. Those, those guys and gals are doing all that work. Um, uh, so I'm 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 still generally fine with with what Marvel's up to though. Um, but I, I get it. Like, but and I also think there's a, it seems like just, just from looking online, it seems like there's this element of culture war to Marvel and DC where like, you have to pick a side, which I find really bizarre because in the comics, it was always like, you know, you're following creators who are going back and forth between the companies. Mm-hmm. So like, I, it's, you know, I don't know. I don't understand this whole, like, it's like a sports team jersey of like, well, you know, if Marvel's doing well, that means DC's not doing well. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't, feel like it's an all ships rise situation. Exactly. I've never, I, I've never gotten into those things, whether it's Marvel versus DC or, uh, you know, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I'm like, no, nah, I like both. I can listen to the Stones and then turn around and listen to the Beatles. I don't have to choose one or the other. Um, and it's it's how I feel about a lot of things because end of the day, like like what you like and and if all of it is like just because one thing is good doesn't make another thing bad i've never understood that that idea it's the same thing with kind of coming back to what we were talking about earlier with like popcorn movies or something directed by david lynch you know a david lynch movie is not going to make a billion dollars at the box office because there's just people are going to be like i don't understand what's going on i can't i can't watch that i don't like it and that's fine it doesn't have to be for everybody. That's the beauty of art. Art isn't supposed to be for everyone all of the time. So, 
What I find sad is I do feel like like I'm worried about movie theaters. I feel like because like when I went to Quantum Mania, there were like twelve people in the theater, and that's the you know that's this big Marvel movie. I mean the what I do sort of get heartened um, when Everything Everywhere All at Once came out. Uh, my wife and I tried to go see that. And we could not get a ticket. And this was in like its second or third week of release. Mm. It was like, oh, we'll go to the movies because no one's ever at the movie theater. And we right. went to uh, the theater in Somerville was sold out. And was like, okay, well, let's look at this other theater. And that was sold out. And then we looked at them. We'd, like our fifth theater two hours later was <laughs> what we wound up having to do to see that movie. So I guess if the right content comes along and people are still going to be up for it. But I, I am worried that the studios are so risk averse. These days, they are that the sort of. It does worry me. The sort of thing that's that's gonna strike a chord, which is usually a thing that comes out of nowhere, like isn't going to happen. Like there's there's no appetite for the risk there, and also there's there's so few kind of mid level movies. That's the other part of it is that's what uh, I loved about everything everywhere all at once was it was such a a breath of fresh air in terms of like the type of movie. That's what I liked about when I saw knives out knives out was that thing in 2019 where it wasn't like, it has an amazing cast, but it wasn't this big blockbuster thing. It just sort of, yeah, it's, it's up. not a big blockbuster, but it's also not like this sort of inscrutable indie film either. Like it, right. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like it was shot on someone's phone. And even to a point, and I mentioned this last week watching, uh, I was watching no escape. Uh, from 94 Mm -hmm. and like that type of movie doesn't happen anymore. That sort of mid-level action movie doesn't because that, that type of thing would be a direct to, you know, Netflix type of, of movie. Um, But even theirs tend to like, I miss that. I miss those types of uh, cheesy, uh, you know, mid-level action movies where they look good, but they maybe have a little less on the uh, star power and they're, sometimes a more high concept thing or like a, a weird sci-fi actioner. I miss that kind of stuff in theaters, but yeah, I also like every so often something, something like that'll break out and be way better, like punch way above its weight class mm-hmm. and we'll make someone a star or we'll make a director. I feel like, um, yeah, like pitch, pitch black was like that. Yes. Dumb sci-fi monster movie, but it just, Know, everyone was doing their job and that movie worked really well and suddenly like Vin Diesel was a star. Yeah. Yep. And and that's the kind of thing that I want to I want to continue to happen because I grew up and I I also know that I'm kind of a dying breed and that I'm like you I love going to the theater. And that's what I grew up with that was just a thing you went and saw movies in the theater and then later on you could watch them at home and I love the ability to watch stuff at home and the we, we are in a just, we are lousy with choices of what to watch and yes. where to watch it. And that's great. I just, it bums me out the idea of, because like one of the um, interviews I was watching with David Lynch, he was talking about when you can make the picture huge and you can make the sound immersive and you can get everybody to sit down and be quiet and pay attention to it you get transported into this like dream world. You can go into the dream of the film. And I feel like I know a lot of people that hate going to movie theaters now and are very vocal about their hatred of going to movie theaters. And that's fine. 
if you don't like that experience, but there is a there is an experience to going to a movie theater that is unlike watching it at home. Now, I have been lucky in my life in that I have not had a lot of really bad movie theater experiences. I hear some horror stories from people where they go to the theater and the guy sitting next to him is taking his shoes off and like putting his feet up on the chair in front of him. And that's that I I I don't understand at all. But like are people like talking through the whole movie? Yeah, that kind of stuff. My so, my my absolute favorite was uh I went to see American Psycho with some friends. And the people in front of us brought like their six-year-old kid to see American Psycho. And this kid was screaming his head off through the whole movie. Yeah. I would have been too if I was six years old seeing that movie. Well, exactly. I'm just like, but you know, I was, I was like 20 at the time. I'm not going to like, can't be like, Hey, <laughs> maybe you shouldn't bring your kid to this movie. But <laughs> that's what, was... by the way, that's another movie that uh, I initially didn't get. And then I thought about it more and I'm like, no, nah, it's actually okay. No, I understand what they were going for now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a, that's another one that kind of fits that mold we were talking about earlier, but yeah, it's, um, and you know, yeah, the, the talking, I uh, talking people on their fucking phones. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, <laughs> um, it's okay. Uh, like that's part of the, the theater experience can be rough. Um, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think, you know, obviously with COVID, you know, People have different comfort levels for going back to also true and and what that's going to look like. Um, Yeah. During like peak 2020, uh, some of the theaters around here were doing like private rentals. And I was uh, like my friend, my friend Ryan rented a theater uh, that, and they had like a section, a selection of like 35 millimeter prints too. So, Oh wow. He rented it and showed John, he showed uh, John Woo's the killer on 35 millimeter. Oh, awesome. That would be so cool. Yeah, I've thought about great. that. Um, I think if I had, if I was in a place of uh, better population density where I could get, you know, a good number of people to kind of be involved in something like that, a th- private theater rental, I think would be really cool to do. Like, you know, once a quarter, do it a couple times a year of get yeah. people together and let's do a movie. Because um, we have, I one of the things that's really cool is I'm lucky enough because I don't live in a very populated area, so we only have the one multiplex. But we also have a little art house theater that will show um, the movies that don't show up at your AMCs. And then they'll do little things like they, they used to run. I, I think they've started to back up, but they would do their Friday night movies where it was like three bucks a ticket and they would show The Running Man or John Carpenter's yeah. The Thing or something like that at like 11 o'clock at night. Um, and they would do occasional movie marathons. They did a Coen brothers marathon one day where it was like $20 and you got four movies and I, it was a Sunday. I'm like, I got nothing else to do. I'm going to sit in the theater for eight hours and just enjoy, you know, that kind of stuff. That's the type of, and, and the audiences that are going to go for that, I think are also more into watching the movie. So I think I, so. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty like, I mean, I'm, I'm outside Boston. There's, there's a lot of great movie theaters. I think like, uh, there have been some cool double features. Like they did a double feature of The Thing and Blade Runner, which was awesome. That'd be cool. They did a double feature of uh, They Live in Chopping Mall, which <laughs> I loved. That's a um, that's not a double feature I would have put together, but I like that. Uh, it was uh, sort of this anti-consumerist theme. I think it was for the day after Thanksgiving. 
Perfect. Um, you know, like the Somerville Theater near me will like they have they'll do seventy millimeter stuff. I saw Lawrence or I saw Lawrence of Arabia for the first time there in seventy millimeter. And it, there oh, is my goddamn mind. There is nothing like seeing that movie in seventy millimeter. I I've been lucky yeah. in that 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 kind of and it's what happened was it was a it was an old theater in our town. It got turned into like a double screen back in the eighties. And they re they gutted the whole thing out and redid it, and it's this old movie palace. And they showed. I remember seeing Lawrence of Arabia in seventy millimeter there, and two thousand one, a Space Odyssey. And yeah, they they were. I saw that in seventy millimeter there too. It's cause, just because I think there are prints like going around. Like, mm-hmm. well, this was during a film festival, and so they did all of Kubrick's films for the week. So I got to oh, nice. I got to see on the big screen basically every movie he made. I think everything. I think I saw everything but Eyes Wide Shut. I don't think I made it to that one, but like I watched the rest of them because I was, um, I was involved volunteering for the festival, so I would go on my off time and even, and even like catch the everything. even like the early stuff. Yeah, they had. Um, uh, so I guess the other one I didn't I didn't see Lolita, okay. but but I did see. I saw two thousand one. I saw Barry Lyndon. I saw um, Paz of Glory, um, and it was great. They were all. Life? Uh, str- oh, definitely saw Strange Love. Absolutely, yeah. I I love that movie. Um, so that was that was a great experience to get to see all those on a big screen, and and just perfect prints and amazing sound and all this all this great stuff. Um, so I've been lucky there, but like I just I don't want theaters, I don't necessarily want theaters to go away, but I feel like there's going to have to be some kind of a change in how they mm-hmm. operate. I don't I think the days of, um you know, 15 screen multiplex, uh, are numbered and we're going to see more of these smaller theaters working, but as long as they stick around, I'll be okay with it. Um, cause there, there just is nothing like getting to sit down with your bucket of popcorn and watch, watch your movie on a big screen like that. It, you, I can't replicate that at home. I just can't, especially when it's, uh, it doesn't have to be a packed theater, but other people in the theater. I think makes a difference. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, having that communal experience, I think. Mm-hmm. Is, Absolutely. It's important because there, there were a few times, I think, uh, like last year where I'd go to a movie, I'd, there'd be maybe one other person. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's a, it's weird when you're sitting in a giant room like that with like two other people. <laughs> but. Yeah. Well. I don't know. Have we exhausted Mulholland Drive? I think so. I think so. There's not a whole lot more to, to squeeze out of this. I will say, though. If you haven't watched it yet, and you, I, I recommend the movie personally. I had a great time with it. Um, your mileage may vary, so if you hate the movie, um, I'm sorry, but I do think it's worth a watch. I really, really do. And thank you. If for so nothing much. else, that Na- that Naomi Watts performance. Oh, her performance is unreal. How good it is. We didn't talk about her enough, and how good her performance is in this movie. Like I. I can't. There aren't enough good things to say. It's just like I can under. I can understand someone not liking the movie. I, I could not understand someone watching Mulholland Drive and being like, "She was terrible." Oh no! Absolutely. I mean, she is just one of. I mean, honestly, one of the best performances I've seen. It's got to be. I put it up there. I put it up there too. Yeah, it's. Yeah, it's like, absolutely. It's de- it's on the short the list for me of like just just amazing performances and emotional performances too. You feel for her throughout the movie, uh, just more and more. 
and all sorts of emotions. It's it's great. It's a good movie. Thank you so much for for you know getting me to watch it finally. Um, oh, thanks for having me. This was really fun. At, well, yeah, welcome back anytime. We'll find we'll find a movie you haven't seen next, and I'll I'll expose all you right. to something. Uh, it, might, it probably won't be quite to the level of David Lynch, but uh, we'll we'll find something fun for you for sure. Um, Sounds great. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show uh, your podcast, Gleaming the Tube. Um, so let people know what that is, where they can find it, and other stuff that you're working on, other stuff that you do. Sure. Uh, Gleaming the Tube is a podcast where my co-host Michael and I uh, watch and discuss a, f- a film that involves skateboarding in some capacity, no matter how tiny. We're trying to uh, fully document the entire history of skateboarding on film and uh we just we put out now we put out an episode yesterday about the movie saved from 2004 and i think we've i think we're doing one next week uh about skater dater which is the first skateboarding movie ever from the 1960s so uh gleamingthetube.net is where you can find that and uh yeah go check it out and um i i Travis and I know each other from the DragonCon digital media Discord server. I'm going to DragonCon this year uh, as an attending professional. So if you're going to DragonCon, uh, go to panels that I'm on. I'm going to be talking about uh, nerdy stuff, hopefully movies, uh, my day job as a video producer slash creative director. So it should be a fun time. Go, go, go. Excellent. Well, hopefully, I'm I'm working on trying to get myself down there to Dragon Con, and if I do, uh, I'll definitely hit the panels that you're on and uh, and get to hang out a little bit. But gleamingthetube.net, and then uh, if you get to Dragon Con, look for uh, Kevin and some panels there. Uh, excellent. Thank you so much for being here this week. This has been a ton of fun. Um, My pleasure. I uh, I record this show Sunday nights, um, usually around eight p.m. Eastern time. Um, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis if you want to hang out live while, while it goes on. show comes out on Wednesdays wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to tvstravis.com, find this and other shows that I do. And there is a Patreon for this show. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash WYHS. Uh, just got a new patron today, actually. So thank you, Leaping Duck, uh, for joining. Uh, appreciate that. And um yeah, next week uh, I am talking about, and I have this here, because um, I did mention I've got Eraserhead coming up in a couple of weeks, but next week I am showing somebody Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade for the first time. They've never seen it. Uh, it's a gentleman by the name of Bill Meeks, and I can't wait to get Bill to watch has this movie. Seen, has he seen other Indiana Jones movies? He's seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Hey, that's going to be so, tough because Last Crusade is not as good. <laughs> no, no, but I'm curious to see what he thinks of it. And I have uh, I have a very special connection to it personally um, that I that I like. I love uh, both Raiders and Last Crusade. Um, I see, you know, why one is is considered better than the others, but I love Last Crusade a lot. Uh, I think part of it is the Sean Connery connection, too. There's something about him. Um, but, yeah, I can't wait for that. I've got uh, – I've also, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be talking about John Wick Chapter 3 because Chapter 4 is coming out. So makes sense to catch up on those. Um, and, like I said, Eraserhead, uh, which I can't wait. Now that I've, I'm have i on this David Lynch kick, I might start watching Twin Peaks 
and and like start binging through that because uh, I haven't watched the new one at all. Um, no, and it's weird because like Lynch made Inland Empire in two thousand five, and he, you know, he was just doing other weird stuff for a while, and Twin Peaks: The Return was kind of his his return to uh, making. I mean, I I don't know. I don't know if it's all one movie, but if it's like an 18 hour movie or a TV show or what, but it's his return to directing. Yeah. Cause he, for a long time, he was just doing all these shorts and he was doing like a weather report every day for whatever reason, just like a random, I'm just going to do the weather today. So he's yeah. a, he's I think part of it was he, he couldn't get funding. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. But yeah. he is, uh, he is definitely one that marches to the beat of his own drum. And I love that. So uh, but definitely uh, come on back for Indiana Jones next week and all sorts of more fun stuff. Uh, but Kevin, thank you so much for being here this week. This has been a ton of fun and uh, we'll definitely do it again sometime. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Yeah. Until next week, get out, enjoy your movies and Hey, be excellent to each other. This has been wait. You haven't seen. You're a good kid, but what you're telling me is a load of horse pucky. <laughs>